Live from the JLE in London, join us for 20 minutes weekly with Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tetz, hosted by myself, Mena Reisner, as we delve into the hottest topics of the 21st century. From the origins of the universe, vaccine conspiracies, genetics and Jewish law, relationships and everything in between, you are listening to Conversations with Rabbi Tatz. And welcome back, Rabbi Tatz. Thank you very much for joining us again. Today we're going to be starting a new series, a series on marriage, which I think is very relevant to any human currently today. Today we'll just start by discussing marriage in general in Judaism. Is it a mitzvah to get married? Can one remain a bachelor if one wants? Should one remain single? Should one get married? Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Thank you for inviting me back for another podcast series. Yes, let's begin with the mitzvah of marriage, and possibly if there's time or another session, we can go into the problem of finding a suitable victim. But <laughs> uh, let's begin with the question of the mitzvah to marry. And the answer to that question is, yes, indeed, it is a commandment, indeed, a mitzvah to get married, which is defined as a man and a woman, despite opinions to the contrary. <laughs> In the modern world, it means a man and a woman, and I think we'll limit ourselves here to Jewish marriage, although, of course, there's a lot to say about non-Jewish marriage as well. But I think the place to begin is, you ask whether it's a mitzvah, and very interestingly, it's a man's mitzvah, not a woman's. Very interesting. This could apply to non-Jews as well, but again, let's put this in the context of Jews. The Torah is clear, and our codes and sources make it clear also, that a man is a mitzvah to marry, and not a woman. Now, that might sound strange, and particularly in the face of the fact that if a man does have a mitzvah to marry, well, he needs a partner or a helper, so why would God set things up in such a way that he gives a man a mitzvah to marry and then says to the woman who's necessary for the marriage, if you don't want it, just don't do it. I mean, it's a very strange mismatch between the two. Very perplexing and very curious. There are some simple answers to this question, but of course I'd like to go a little bit deeper. One of the simple answers to this question is that a marriage and childbirth involves some pain and danger. And it's not reasonable for the Torah to command a person to put themselves in to a situation of pain and danger. Woman's going to get married, and part of the mitzvah within marriage, once she is married, is to have children. Childbirth, we know, has a certain risk. So one of the approaches to this question is that a woman needs to be willing to take on that risk, of course, and it's fulfillment as well, but the risk is something that the Torah would not impose on her. Now, I give our listeners a little challenge here. What about circumcision, which is also a slight risk, small risk, and yet the Torah does oblige us not only to put ourselves through that, to be and put someone else through that, even a little child when they're small. That's a little homework for our listeners. But that's one simple approach to this question. But I'd like to tell you one that is a little bit deeper. And that is the notion that mitzvahs in general require understanding. And if we understand them correctly, I think we'll understand why the Torah is not command a woman to, to marry. The context for this is a very interesting discussion that I once had with my great Rebbe, Rav Moshe Shapira. And the context was a young lady who was very, very talented and outstanding and very unusual young lady. The fact that she's my daughter is not really not really <laughs> relevant, but she said to me she has a question to ask my Rebbe. So we went, the two of us, and we sat down with him, and she asked him the following two questions. She said, one question is, why I, as a woman, a Jewish woman, have no commandment to marry? I want to do what God wants me to do. If he wants me to marry, surely he'll command me. 
evidently from the fact that he has not commanded me to marry, unlike men, he's not interested in my marriage. If he wanted me to do it, he would tell me to do it. And my second question is, why was Eve cursed in an area that's optional? Chava, right, the first woman, as a result of her sin, man, of course, as a result of his sin, he was given a whole list of curses. But Eve was given, as a result of her sin, she was given certain curses, certain results of her sin. And as a result of that, her path to marriage became optional. Now, the strange thing is that when God curses a person, the first man, the first woman, for, for perverting their way in the world, you would expect the curse to relate to something that is essential, right? Something intrinsic to them. And a man turns to a woman and he says to her, from now you'll be cursed with certain danger and pain in your feminine physiology involving childbirth in many ways, preparation for childbirth, the hormonal cycle, and the whole process of pregnancy. So that will be your curse. And then he turns to a woman and he says, but of course if you don't want to, just don't do it. It's a very strange curse. Man gets cursed in his essence, unavoidable curse. He has to work hard to earn a living, and if he doesn't, he'll die. But a woman's curse seems to be deep and yet optional. It's a very strange form of curse. Those were her two questions. And she was only three years old. <laughs> no, I think she was 19 at the time. But here's what the rabbi answered. And his answer is really, really marvelous. He said, your two questions have the same answer. In order to understand the answer to your questions, we need to know that mitzvahs are not simply beautiful spiritual experiences. Mitzvahs are solutions to problems. Mitzvahs are strategies for overcoming deficiencies in the personality and the world. No better proof than the fact that the Zohar, the great Kabbalistic work, calls mitzvahs etin, which in Aramaic translates in Hebrew as etzes, etzot, which means strategies for dealing with difficulties. In other words, there's a problem in the personality and a problem in the world, and a mitzvah is the way to overcome the problem. Very interesting. Which means mitzvahs are only given where there's a problem. Let me give you a classic example. Perhaps the classic example. You know that men and women have different sets of mitzvahs. Men's mitzvahs are positive and negative mitzvahs. Women have all the same negative mitzvahs as men. Obviously, a woman cannot steal, kill, etc. But the positive mitzvahs, a woman has a very interesting circumscribed set of positive mitzvahs. The positive mitzvahs that are occasioned by time, what we call mitzvahs essay shazman gromah, a mitzvah that is required by a time period or time phase, she's exempt. Now, why would a woman be exempt from certain kinds of mitzvahs? Right? Why would she be exempt from mitzvahs that have no time-bound element? For example, a woman is exempt from putting on tefillin. Why? Tefillin need to be put on during the day. Tzitzis during the day. Mitzvahs that are time-bound, taking a lulav at a certain season, for example. Now, of course, women may fulfill those mitzvahs, absolutely, and be given reward, but she's not obliged to. Now, why would a woman be exempt from time-occasioned mitzvahs? And again, there are simple answers. The simplest answer that's usually given to young children is a woman has to care for a baby. If a baby needs attention, the baby needs attention now. The father tends to older children. The child can wait. But a baby needs to be fed. The mother can't say, sorry, darling, I'm going to sit in the sukkah or take my lulav. That's a simplistic answer, I would say. But here's the deep answer. The deep answer is that mitzvahs are in the world to fix you. Time-bound mitzvahs one of their functions is to draw you into the time cycle construction of the world, discipline you within time, to bring you into the time cycle of the natural world. Now, women are already linked to the time cycle of the world. They don't need that. A woman has a physical cycle, a physiological cycle, that is an incredible cycle. Speaking as a doctor, let me tell you that the woman's monthly cycle is something so sophisticated and subtle that medicine has no theory about how it works. 
by which I mean this, that all other biological cycles that we know are linked to time or seasonal variation, day-night changes in certain animals, seasonal changes. The only exception is the female ovarian cycle, which cuts across seasons, day-night length. It ticks to a clock of a month, and no one knows how that works. In fact, some women have a cycle so regular that it starts on the same date of the Hebrew month, as is well known. The same date. It may be a long month or a short month, but an ovary knows what the moon is doing. This is unbelievable. This means that the only thing we know that the female ovary connects to in the natural world is the moon. Now, medicine doesn't even have a theory about how that works, but that's a very deep spiritual link. And therefore, women, man doesn't have that. And therefore, a man needs to be brought into a disciplined cycle of time. Woman has that within her. She doesn't need that. So we see from this that the concept is that mitzvahs are given to lock you in or discipline you in areas where you need it. Let's go back to marriage. The reason a woman does not have a commandment to marry is because the Torah gives her the credit for understanding it so deeply and intrinsically that she doesn't need a commandment. A commandment is only against an issue where you need a correction. For example, no one wants to give away their money to other people. The Torah says, no, give charity. People would like to behave licentious, abandoned. The Torah says, no, control it. Mitzvahs are corrections for undeveloped or illicit parts of the personality. When it comes to marriage, a man has to be told, you need to do this. The Torah gives a woman the credit for the sensitivity of understanding what marriage means. And throughout the Talmud, you find this assumption that women understand the concept of marriage and deep relationship without being beaten into it. And therefore, here's the answer to the question. The reason a woman does not have a mitzvah to marry is not because it's not important, but because she doesn't need to be forced. She understands what it means intrinsically, and she doesn't need to be beaten into it. And certainly Eve was cursed in an area of essence. The fact that a woman doesn't have a mitzvah to marry does not mean that Eve wasn't unimportant for her. It means that God trusts her so deeply, knowing what it means to achieve the fulfillment of marriage and bringing children into the world, ideally, that she doesn't need to be forced. And therefore, that's, I would say, a more sophisticated answer to your question of why it's a man's mitzvah but not a woman's. Not because it's not important for a woman. It's at least as important as it is for a man. But yet, a man is disciplined into it and forced into it, so to speak, by the commandment. A woman is trusted to express herself in that without needing pressure. Wow, my wife is going to love this podcast. (laughs) Are there general principles in finding a partner? Is it luck of the draw? Is it predestined? How are there principles in finding? Yes, predestiny, of course, here's another issue. There is such a thing as a bashert, which means a divinely created natural or perfect partner, indeed. Well, yes, there are rules that one needs to be aware of when choosing a partner. And I would suggest to you, and I think this will take us longer, perhaps in this podcast, but we can continue in the next one. I would suggest to you that there are two non-negotiable criteria, and then a red line, and then a list of negotiables. So that's my scheme. I would say that experience and Torah sources indicate there are two non-negotiable criteria. And then that's above the red line. If you're missing one of these, you're going to be in big trouble. Below the red line, I've got a whole long list of negotiable items. I didn't say unimportant. They may be critical, but they're not universally important. For some people, you know, for example, do you need to marry into a warm and loving family? Well, for some people say, yes, I absolutely need that. Others will say, I'm not marrying the girl's mother. I'm marrying her. We'll go live in Alaska, you know, with no phones and it'll be okay. You You're know? always marrying the girl's mother. <laughs> well, yes, but in some cases you will live more closely and intimately with the girl's mother. In some places you can yeah. set the distance between you. So I would say that there are many things in the negotiable list. I'll just give you one example. Health. Do you need to marry someone healthy? No, negotiable. I used to live in a certain city where I saw a young couple and I noticed that every couple of days this lady was taken, a young lady taken to hospital. Turned out she had terminal cancer. She died soon after that. I went to see the young man. 
He told me that they'd been married for four years. When they were engaged, she told him she had terminal cancer. He married her anyway. He said it was the most wonderful four years of his life, and now he's looking to remarry. But not everyone can do that. And therefore, there are a number of negotiable items. I would start like this. I would say two non-negotiables, very important, and then a list of negotiables which are individually important to various people. Now, before I tell you what those two non-negotiables are, I'm making the assumption that they're absolutes which are even above the negotiables. Absolutes. For example, one absolute is, if you're a young man setting out to get married, the partner that you're considering needs to be female. Now, that needs to be said in our generation because our generation has adopted same-sex marriage as a norm in our society. I don't want to go into that fully now, but I'll say that in Judaism, that doesn't meet the definition of marriage. Not talking about whether it's acceptable, not acceptable, societally, you know, politically correct or not. A definition of marriage, what we call kiddushin, is the reconstitution of a spiritual relationship between two complementary opposite halves. In homosexual marriage, two men or two women, you're not dealing with complementarity, and that, of course, is why it's sterile. That's why it's a sterile relationship. Jewish marriage is defined. The sanctity of marriage is the completion of two opposites completing each other's deficiency, and that, by definition, is male and female. Two men can have a wonderful relationship. The Talmud makes it clear that two men could have a deeper love, a more selfless love, than man and woman. That's wonderful, but it's not called marriage. Marriage, Kedushin, is by definition male and female. I'm talking here about Jewish male and female, which means that a Jewish young man contemplating marriage needs to find a Jewish young lady. Now, of course, a convert to Judaism is a thousand percent Jewish. The greatest Jews in history, I would say, were converts, no less than the grandmother, great-grandmother of King David, Rabbi Akiva and his family, and so forth. So we're not talking about prejudice or bigotry here. We're talking about... Incidentally, why do you need to marry a Jew? Why? And the reason is not because of superiority or inferiority. Just like two men cannot marry, it's not a question of inferiority. It's a question of the correct spiritual hooks, if you like, that bond into each other correctly. And I think the way to present this is that you mentioned Bashirt, or predestined, as you said. We have a notion that before people are born, before the time of conception, a spiritual announcement, so to speak, is made about who will marry whom, or should I put it more accurately, who would be suitable, the perfect marriage partner. And in fact, the, the Talmud goes so far as to say that husband and wife in the spiritual world before birth are fused as one, technically speaking, fused at the back, which is a wonderful relationship, no vulnerable back, and perfect oneness. But on the other hand, no face-to-face relationship. They're then torn apart and brought to the world as separate individuals to find each other and fuse face-to-face through the work of their own of their own giving of kindness to each other, really means that Jewish marriage is a reconstitution of an original cosmic oneness. And the reason the Jewish man needs to marry a Jewish woman is because she's the other half of a spiritual entity that was once part of him. So again, it's got nothing to do with superiority, inferiority. This was one Jewish neshama in the spiritual world. Can I just interrupt you for a second? So if one's partner dies or one gets divorced and they find a new partner, how does that work? Well, the point is that even the first partner, we do not know, was the original destined or beshirt one in the first place. All this concept means is that there are two halves of a soul, and given the right effort under the right circumstances, they will find each other. That doesn't mean you will. You may reject. You may marry the right person and divorce that individual. You may reject the opportunity. So there's no guarantee here. And we don't know whether it's the first marriage, the second, or indeed, it could be that a man could be beshirt to partner with more than one woman. But let's not forget in Jewish marriage, a man can marry many women. Now, we don't do that today. But theoretically, a man is a multipotential source, 
and a woman is the unitary receiver of those sparks to bring them into the world in the finite measure. We need to talk here about male and female. But as you know, in the conception of a child, the man produces seed by the billion. The woman produces eggs only one at a time, complete opposite nature in the spiritual world. And therefore, we do not know, we're not privy. The woman doesn't come with a flashing sign on her forehead saying, you know, Bashir. That is no practical application. But again, the reason two Jews need to marry is not because we're prejudiced against non-Jews, but because we understand that these are two halves of a cosmic soul. The Talmud says the reason you long to marry is because you're looking for the part of yourself you lost. You know, you can only long for something that's related to you. You can't long for something that has nothing to do with you. Why would you long for it? You only long for something you're missing. You feel the lack and the loss of that thing, right? Why does a person long to learn Torah? Because in the spiritual world, before you were born, you were taught the whole Torah. It was ripped away from you in an act of leaving you bereft of spiritual wisdom. And the reason when you learn something spiritually true, you don't have a sense of learning, you have a sense of recognition. You say, I know that's true. How do you know it's true? It was once part of you. And by the way, not accidental that the Torah is also called a betrothed marital partner. Right? The Gemara says, Altikri morasha elam morasa. Do not call the Torah your betrothed, call it your inheritance betrothed. Play on words. Which means that just like your Torah wisdom, your spiritual wisdom is an intrinsic part of you that you lost just before birth and you recapture, marriage is a part of your spiritual essence which you're recapturing in marriage. So if someone has a longing for, let's say, a non-Jewish partner or a homosexual partner, is that almost like an artificial longing? Well, this goes into a complicated discussion about what the essence of the soul is of that person. And this takes us into a discussion of conversion. It takes us into a discussion of a male soul or a female soul trapped in a man's body, which could be another reason for that attraction. This will take us on to much more distant territory. But I would say this needs to be distinguished. This longing needs to be carefully distinguished. One form of that longing is a deep spiritual longing for connection. The other one is a illusory infatuation that the lower self may foist upon a person, right? So if a person might feel an infatuation at the level of sensuality for any partner, that needs to be carefully distinguished from the deep spiritual essence of a marital drive. Now the two can overlap very significantly. Anyway, let's sum up at this point, if I may. We can devote a separate discussion for the mysterious question of what are the two non-negotiables. But the absolutes are, again, that the person is suitable, male, female, Jewish. And I may add, ostensibly can have children. What happens if a man wants to marry a woman who cannot have children? Now, one of the mitzvahs of marriage is to be together with someone. But the second is to have children. What happens to a woman who cannot have children? And this we have a long and fascinating approach to in Jewish law, halakha. Can you use surrogacy? Can the woman give an egg to someone else to carry? This will take us into a complex discussion. We could certainly do it sometime. And we have solutions to those questions. But I would say these are the absolute requirements before we get to the non-negotiables. Finally, I would add here as a word of advice to our listeners, being on the same religious page probably should be classed as an absolute. In other words, you know, marry somebody who doesn't have the same religious aspirations, somebody motivated to build a Jewish home with similar values to yours, that's a recipe for trouble. Now, you don't have to be on the same religious level, but you need to be heading in the same direction. Anyway, these are some initial thoughts about the absolutes. And if you care to invite me again, Rabbi, I'm happy to talk about... I certainly will. And uh, we're going to leave our listeners on a cliffhanger about the two non-negotiables. They'll have one more week of peace. <laughs> Thank you very much, Rabbi Tats, for joining us again. That is the end of episode one in our new series on marriage. 
Be sure to listen to episode two. And as usual, any questions, any feedback can be sent to podcasts at jle.org.uk. Thank you very much for coming in again. My pleasure.